0: Hello, you're listening to the Northern Agenda podcast, bringing you the political stories that matter from the north and to the north with me, Rob Parsons, a political journalist based in Leeds. Coming up later, we'll be finding out what's happening in St Helens, where local leaders hope the creation of a multi-million pound market will help stem the decline of the town centre and maybe even show how struggling market towns across our region can be restored to their former glory. But our habits have changed rapidly in recent years, so how will they make this new project fit for 2024 and beyond?
1: And the conviction in, in very challenging financial times for the council to find just under £70 million of capital funding itself um, is a demonstration of its conviction to to do what was asked and not have another false door on of a scheme that's that where we've seen um, pretty pictures and and CGI's previously. It's, it's all reality here now. But first, I wanted to start by digging into the
0: political story that's gripped Westminster and dominated the news agenda this week, a by-election up north happening at the end of this month that's getting more attention than the two further south going on just this week. And I think a large part of the reason the Rochdale by-election finding a successor for the late Sir Tony Lloyd MP, who sadly died last month. The reason it's getting so many headlines is the really painful mess Labour have got into over their candidate, or should I say ex-candidate, Azar Ali, more than two days after being presented with a recording by the Mail on Sunday where Councillor Ali suggests that Israel allowed the deadly attack by Hamas Hamas gunmen on October 7th as a pretext to invade Gaza, Keir Starmer finally withdrew his support, but it's too late to find a replacement candidate, so Azhar Ali's name will remain on the ballot paper. Amid the chaos and confusion, George Galloway, the firebrand former MP for places like Bradford West, now seems to be the frontrunner for the by-election on February 29th, as he runs on a distinctly anti-Labour, pro-Palestine message in a town with a 30% Muslim population. It's a nightmare scenario for Keir Starmer and every Westminster pundit with access to a laptop has been giving their two pennyworth this week. Let's talk to a good friend of the podcast, Joe Timmon, political writer for the Manchester Evening News, who has actually been out and about in Rochdale finding out what voters have been saying. Um, Joe, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me on again.
0: Like I say, you've been um, out in Rochdale this week, as have other Manchester Evening news reporters finding out sort of what what people are feeling locally but just before we get into that maybe you could just give us a bit of a sense for people who don't know Rochdale sort of the kind of place it is uh, and its political history like how have we how have we got to this this point
2: yeah well Rochdale's been in the headlines nationally many times um, even recently for really bad reasons but it's it's a town with a really proud history the birthplace of the cooperative movement a um, former mill town, but also it's got a lot of rural elements to it, just outside of the town within the borough. Um, it's part of Greater Manchester, but actually the town itself is quite far out and you start getting into the hills, Sort of, you can see the hills from the town centre itself. So it's it's quite a diverse borough in terms of landscape and also in terms of population and um, the constituents, constituency itself. I think about 30% of the population is Asian, 20% of the electorate, um, which is uh, definitely going to be a factor in this by-election, which I'm sure we'll come to later. Um, In terms of its political history, um, I mean, one other thing I should add is that it's it's a town with high levels of of deprivation um, in the top 20 across the UK uh, for child poverty, about more than 40% of children living in poverty there. Um, So uh, like many other places with that description, in recent years, it's been represented by Labour. But I was looking back at its political history and uh, historically, it's been represented by all the major parties. Uh, since the 70s, it's been between the Lib Dems and Labour. Um, Cyril Smith, uh, the disgraced MP, um, was the Lib Dem MP there for a long time. Um, uh, the allegations of child sexual abuse uh, on his part came up following his death. Um, and we have had a Lib Dem MP there since uh, since uh, he he left the role, um, but in in recent years it has been Labour and the majority has increased over time, or at least it has become quite comfortable. I think it actually went down a bit in 2019, but we're still talking about sort of uh, about 9,000 or so.
0: Yeah, so we've all in, in in more normal circumstances this would have been considered a pretty comfortable hold for Labour, um, but it, it's clearly turned out to be anything but that so you were you went to Rochdale earlier this week and I think at the point that you were there there was a lot of pressure on Azar Ali to uh well for Labour to withdraw its support but at that stage it hadn't happened but I think it did happen a few hours later but I guess you were still able to get a bit of a sense of what people locally were making about it what what was the kind of feeling you were you were getting?
2: Yeah, it was interesting because it was all over sort of the political press at that point. But I suppose once it got into day two, when action was actually taken um, to to sort of withdraw their support from Azhar Ali, perhaps more people would have been aware of it sort of as the day, as the week sort of went on. Whilst I was there, no one brought it up, um, really, except for one man who said the comments went anti-Semitic. He's just, uh, you know, apologising because he wants to protect his own position. Really, the fight that um, Labour had there was against someone who takes, in some respects, sort of much more extreme views quite publicly um, on, on sort of Middle East affairs and has been known for doing that historically, George Galloway, um, who seems to have picked up support um, from uh, within, particularly, the Muslim community. Um, I struggle to find anyone at all um, talking about voting Labour, um, which is surprising for some way you expect there to be a strong. Um, you know, it's obviously a small sample size. I only spoke to so many people. But you'd think somewhere with a, a relatively safe Labour majority, it wouldn't be that hard to find someone voting for them. A lot of support for George Galloway. Um, everyone I spoke to from the Muslim community seemed to have known him or uh, had had seen him recently. Or one person said, my family know him quite well. And he seems to be well connected as well as sort of getting his face and his name out there. Um, the, the, the thing that was interesting for me is... Whether or not this is sort of entirely the case, I think the people I spoke to said uh, it's not all about Palestine. It's not all about the conflict in the Middle East, which is something that George Galloway has put at the centre of his campaign. Um, I think what came across was, you know, the kind of things people were talking about is what you'd expect in any by-election. Sort of funding for the local area, youth services, um, and I think what George Galloway has managed to do is by being a strong voice on a very particular issue, he's, he comes across as a strong, someone who can be sort of a strong voice for Rochdale generally. That's, that's you know, from the people I spoke to, that, that's the mood I picked up. But having said that, one of my colleagues was there yesterday and he said there's still a lot of undecided voters, um, still a lot of people sort of confused about what to do, um, how, how to vote in the by-election in a couple of weeks' time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess what George Galloway would ideally like uh, is for this whole by-election to become a referendum on the situation in Gaza and Labour's stance on that. Obviously, Keir Starmer has attracted quite a lot of uh, anger from the Muslim community for refusing to support a ceasefire uh, in, in, in Gaza. And like, if you look across the North. Uh, it's not just in Rochdale. Like local councillors are quitting the Labour Party in quite large numbers because they're so angry about this, and they're hearing what you know that what local residents are saying are saying to them. And uh, I see George Galloway. His campaign HQ is a Suzuki car dealership outside the town centre, and all his literature prominently includes the green, white, and red of the Palestinian flag. So he that he would ideally like this to be a uh, a referendum just on that issue, but I mean, are there other things that that local people care about there as well? I know there was a big, very uh, damning report into child sex abuse in Rochdale uh, wasn't there recently
2: yeah and there's, there's a candidate who's standing on on a platform sort of against uh all that, that sort of stuff so yeah as you said recently that there, there, there was a, a report into um the grooming scandal um looking back sort of around 10 years ago and before that um and reports that came out uh, at, at that time um you know commentators were saying you know there's still an issue with it so I don't doubt that it's on the mind of people even if it, whether or not it's sort of purely a historic issue I think it will still be on the minds of a lot of voters um the way that sort of local authority and the way that the police handled it um even if uh you know that there have been changes since then um as I said there's a, there's an independent candidate who set up a group I believe called parents against grooming so he's clearly um passionate about that issue um but but to be honest the people i spoke to it the kind of issues that came up were the kind of things you'd expect to come up in a town that has a lot of poverty that has sort of uh, faced the brunt of austerity over the last sort of decade and more um as i said youth services have come up um it came up when I went there three weeks ago uh, when they first sort of went, just after Sir Tony Lloyd died, um, people weren't even aware there was going to be a by-election. It was the first thing they brought up. That's the kind of thing that they want an MP to do, to to, um, give young people in the area something to do. And and they would refer to sort of the lack of investment in the area. So it is interesting. You're right. George Galloway has put um, Palestine and Gaza at the centre of his campaign. But in many ways, I think um, he's... It's, it's a campaign against Labour more broadly as well. Um, people were telling me that they're no longer voting Labour because of those other issues as well. You know, where's the opposition to the cost of living? Where's the opposition to people having to use food banks? That's the kind of thing that people were saying. Um, and so it's, it wasn't, you know, that, that's the big sort of headline issue that I think has probably helped him gain a lot of attention and you know that's that's probably why he is putting the flag on on his uh the Palestinian flag on his leaflets but i think it's 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 um you know there's a bigger issue here as well that he's playing into
0: yeah absolutely so we should probably uh focus a bit more on galloway i mean he's he's had an incredibly colourful career as a, a politician um and most recently he was an mp uh for 3 years in Bradford West, um, where he, uh, by all accounts, sought to capitalize on discontent within the local Labour Party and tensions in the Asian community. So very similar to the situation that we have here. I, I know someone who lived in Bradford at the time and described Galloway as being uh, being like a tornado, he said. Uh, he uh, stirred up a lot of uh, swear word, wreaked havoc, and then quickly disappeared. Uh, which I think is, is possibly something that other places might say about Galloway um, as well. I mean, I guess it's undeniable that if he were to become the MP for Rochdale, and I think he is the bookie's favourites, although I'm not totally sure what that's based on, he would get a lot more attention in the media. Uh, there'll be a lot more mention of Rochdale in the national news than there might otherwise have been. But I mean, what, what sense have you, what, what have you heard about, from Galloway this week that kind of gives you a sense of what he's focusing on.
2: Well it's interesting because I look back at um stuff that he said before in other by-elections and and the the line that he's gone with in this one as well is you know he's he's standing to be MP for everyone, not just one community. Um but it's clear that his appeal is very much um in in the Muslim community and it and it has been historically in other constituencies that he's represented. Um so yeah, it's 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 hard to say what kind of. I mean, you're right. The part of the appeal is probably having someone with such a high profile representing you that can say what he wants. He's the leader of his own party. He's essentially an independent in some senses. But, you know, he's 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 not got a boss really in the way that a Labour um, or Conservative or Lib Dem um, yeah, candidate would have um so he could, so could can speak his mind and i think that's part of the appeal that like i said earlier you know he's been a strong voice on um issues relating to um israel and palestine uh so i think people see that as sort of translating into being a strong voice for rochdale as well i mean whether or not people in bradford um would it, bradford west would agree that he was a strong voice In Bradford at the time I don't know but you're certainly right that he'll definitely bring a lot of attention to Rochdale it'll be interesting to see whether or not he does win how you know how much this sort of attention that we've seen from the national media in the last couple of weeks um, stays around afterwards and then sort of follows it. it
0: Yeah I mean one thing I was uh, interested in was his uh, voting record and his sort of contributions in parliament which obviously is a large part of uh, an MP's role. Um, And it appears that during his eight years as MP for Bradford West and an earlier spell as MP in Bethnal Green and Bow in London, he voted uh, 180 times, which is not that many, really. If you compare it to uh, Jo Cox, uh, the ex-MP for Batley and Spen, which was an area where George Galloway tried to become MP a couple of years ago, she voted 174 times, so nearly as many, in just her one year in the job uh mr galloway also made 18 spoken contributions and 16 written questions uh during his spell as bradford west mp which is not uh, a large number uh, again joe cox in her one year uh, made about three times three times as many so he he may get a lot of attention whether he is the man to diligently represent the local interests of constituents in the sort of uh the sort of uh, the grinding process of of Parliament—that's a whole different thing. But I mean, I guess just thinking about the numbers for this particular by election, that the, the, the turnout is predicted to be low because of the time of year, so the disaffection with politics. Um, if George Galloway can mobilise a big section of the uh, Muslim population, uh, which is about thirty thousand strong, get to about eight thousand votes that could well be enough to win in uh in a low turnout so you, you can see perhaps why he's 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 operating in the way he is and um, but joe there are some other interesting candidates that we ought to know about in this by election aren't there tell me about uh simon danchuk the former mp for rochdale who's back in the running
2: Yeah, that was quite a surprise. Simon Danchik standing for the reform, um, former Labour MP until 2017. Um, He stood as an independent uh, whilst he was suspended from the Labour Party um, after uh, messages he'd sent to um, uh, a 17-year-old girl, I believe, uh, were were revealed. He got in trouble with the Labour Party. had. And, and wasn't allowed to stand um, in 2017 at the general election. So citizen stood as an independent and told the MEN at the time that he sort of had finished with politics. He wasn't planning sort of a comeback. And here we are, what, seven years later, um, and he's standing for Nigel Farage's uh, reform party. Um, he, he was, uh, I mean, he wrote a book on uh, Cyril Smith, the former the Dem MP and, and the sort of allegations uh, of, of child sexual abuse. On on by by Cyril Smith, so he he, he's I suppose would be seen as especially standing for a party like reform, someone who is prepared to call out um, uh, and and sort of focus on allegations of uh, grooming and that sort of thing. So you can see what the appeal might be. I mean, people know his name. Whether people like him, I mean, he didn't get his deposit back in 2017 as an independent. So he'd probably be riding on the reform name more than uh, they'll be riding on on his name. Although, yeah, it might help that he his name um, is known locally. I mean, it's it's a really interesting by election. We've got 11 candidates, no women, um, several independents, three now three former ex-Labour candidates, one of them he'll still have Labour on the ballot, a Green Party candidate who said now he's left the stage after some um, uh, some sort of tweets uh on, on, on you know he, he shared some tweets about Islam that were quite distasteful um and he he said himself for those regrettable uh, remarks hes he's going to sort of stand down, but he'll still be on the back of the green party candidate um We've got the Montserrat looning party it's 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 a really i mean the interesting thing going back to what you're saying earlier about who's likely to win, whether George Galloway can come through the middle, if these other sort of independents and other parties can somehow pick up some votes you know um i wonder how much that helps george galloway in the sense that you know he's obviously got a big strong supporter base he'll have people making sure the vote comes out there'll be labor can uh there'll there'll, there'll be a labor candidate on the ballot in a safe labor seat but there won't be labor um campaigners door knocking and making sure uh their voters come out and, and turn out so it's it's there's a lot of things in this equation and it's a really hard one to predict.
0: Yeah. Now, I guess a large part of the reason why this has been getting so much attention is, uh, you know, it, it's a, a relatively rare opportunity for the uh, the right wing sections of the media to really give Keir Starmer and Labour a good kicking uh, over, over this issue. And um, I mean, it's thinking about it, whoever has leaked this recording to the mail on Sunday clearly wants to do or clearly wanted to do as much damage to Labour as they possibly could. It looks like it came from a meeting late last year uh, where these comments were made, but it's only emerged uh, in the public domain when it's too late for Labour to choose another candidate. So the absolute worst possible scenario um, from their point of view, it will be very interesting to see who Labour pick as their candidates to fight the general election, which is coming later this year. You wonder whether it will be um Paul War, who is the uh former chief political commentator for the I, uh, Rochdale, born and bred. He put himself forward to be Labour's candidate, but was beaten by Azar Ali, obviously, before these um before these comments surfaced. We don't know what Paul War's intentions are, but he might be seen as a much less controversial figure um interesting comments also i've been hearing today from andy burnham mayor of greater manchester who was at the launch of azar ali's uh campaign last week again before the comments surfaced and he was telling um bbc radio manchester today how the people of rochdale have been let down by Labour's handling of the whole thing uh and that people in rochdale should be should have been entitled to expect better from the labor party so I mean how for you how damaging has this whole debacle been for, for labor
2: yeah it's interesting because like i said when i went there on monday obviously before the labor candidate was suspended um the, no one really spoke about the sort of comments that had been uh, leaked to the mail on sunday um and if anything you know as i said earlier they were fight labor was up against is up against was up against um, uh, uh, someone who sort of held probably more extreme views than that and um, so I don't think actually those comments would have been that damaging in Rochdale had he stayed on it obviously the reason that the Labour Party took the decision was because of the impact it could have um, elsewhere in the country not least in constituencies with um, a big Jewish population um, but just generally across the country because you know I don't know if it was the reason that a lot of people left Labour in 2019, the anti-Semitism scandal, but it certainly put Labour in a bad light for everyone. There were obviously people who were really concerned about that issue, particularly. But um, you know, having said that, he's changed his party. Keir Starmer needed to show that um, you know he'd rooted this out. Which you know, from the, the the recording itself, you can see there's clearly an issue in parts of the Labour Party still um and and obviously he 's still getting criticism despite having to take what he described decisive action for not acting fast enough so i think I think it is damaging. Um, even for those people who aren't necessarily motivated to vote based on whether they think the party ho- holds certain views on Israel or Zionism or, or whether it's you know any elements of anti-Semitic at all, um, I think it's da- a damaging look still for Labour nationally, but in particular in a, in a, yeah seats with Jewish with with high Jewish populations.
0: Yeah. Now, obviously, this is getting a lot of attention, or has been getting a lot of attention this week. But it's worth noting that if the by-elections, uh, which are happening uh, tomorrow as we uh, do this podcast in Wellingborough and Kingswood down south, go badly there to um, Tory-held seats where the Tories have big majorities, uh, if if Labour win those uh, and gain the seats, the narrative will shift back again to the Conservative woes. I suspect uh, it's emerged today that we've gone the country has gone back into recession uh however briefly and a new poll shows that the tories are on course to lose all but seven seats uh, in the north in the next general election if things stay as they currently are so will this best be a one week story or will it be something that gains a lot more traction over the weeks to come i guess we will wait and see but uh joe timmon thanks for thanks for coming on thanks for having me In the North's big cities like Manchester, Newcastle, Liverpool, and Leeds, the last few years have seen huge amounts of regeneration transforming them beyond recognition. The changes come about on the back, in many cases, of private sector investment, ambitious political leadership, and funding interventions from local and national governments. But what about our region's satellite towns? and smaller cities, many with a proud tradition and history that stretches back to before the Industrial Revolution. With town centres that in many cases have gone into decline in recent years, thanks in part to the rise of retail parks and online shopping, isn't it about time they were brought up to date too to meet our changing demands? St Helens, with a population of about 180 thousand people situated between Liverpool and Manchester is in many ways a typical northern market town. It's in the next wave of areas bringing forward large-scale regeneration plans and local leaders hope it will show us how struggling town centres can be restored to their former glory. The local council, which is Labour-run, has signed a 20-year partnership with the English Cities Fund, which is a partnership between Homes England, Legal and General and the property developer Muse to revitalise St Helens Town Centre and the nearby Earlstown, both of which have restoring the town centre markets at the heart of their proposals. In St Helens, the existing St Mary's market, which has seen footfall rates decline for years, will be replaced, it looks like, by a brand new building which will act as the hub for the town centre. So let's find out all about it with a senior official from St. Helens Council, Sean Trainer, who is Director of Strategic Growth. Sean, welcome.
1: Yeah, good afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me along.
0: Before we talk about the project itself, perhaps you can just set the scene for us a bit by just describing the role that the market, uh, the local market has played in St Helens and Earlstown historically and how also those markets have been doing recent years, because you know, across the north, local markets have
1: had some quite difficult times, haven't they? From a St. Helens Town Centre perspective, um, and it's been around the, the market. Um, market sheds originally in 1843, um, and then we had our first market hall in 1850, and then a covered market in 1889. So a long, long time. So they have survived. I think that's one of the key messages. Um, and there have been lots and lots of retail patterns and economic changes during those times. and And, and obviously, We've experienced some of them of, of late, and you've mentioned the challenges that the current St. Murray's um, market experiences. And I think certainly one of the, the fundamentals there now, and we're down to about 25 stallholders there, which is a significant reduction in what we've had in the past. I'm from St. Helens myself, I was brought up. I absolutely fondly remember the market, um, which has moved locations a couple of times in my lifetime, um, and fondly remember those times, a thriving, bustling Market and I can refer back to certain shops and certain goods um, that I that I bought. Clearly, lots have happened um, just in in my lifetime from an economic perspective. But the, the key thing is from a from a from a market um, perspective that location is is everything really for for them. And what we've realised is that when Saint Murray's Market moved from its former position. Um, circa 20 years ago Um, it was out of the core centre for the town centre and clearly that's been a detriment um, at that time so one of the key motivations for us in the phase one regeneration scheme with the English Cities Fund is to move it right into the heart and the core of the town centre and it will be the anchor of phase one developments though. Tell us a bit
0: more about the thinking behind what you're uh, proposing both in St Helens and in Earlstown. I mean, how how do both of these markets sort of fit into the northwest uh, economy? And what challenges are you hoping that the creation of these new markets will will sort of help 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 solve?
1: So effectively, the St. Helens borough has got two town centres. St. Helens Town Centre, which I touched on first, um, and the secondary town centre of Earlstown is a traditional market town. In itself, St. Helens is a border um, emerged really from the Industrial Revolution. It really played a, a significant part in that. Whereas Old Town has almost always been that traditional market town. It's had a, a market established for over 700 years in Old Town. So rather than the, the newer town of St. Helens, Old Town, which was part of a unitary district council previously, has had its markets around for for a long, long time. And Old Town, really, at the core of it, is that thriving market. Town, it's what it's predicated on, um, and it's very different feel. It's an outdoor market. It operates um, two days a week, um, a, a, a Friday market weekly, and then a, a flea market on a on a Saturday. Um, so it's open open air currently um, conditions. So very much different from the shopping centre feel that Saint Helens has, and very much a, a, a different clientele and a different feel in the. But it's again it's right right at the core of earlstown town, town centre um and that's really where the the sort of people are very proud of of that function it's so critical to the success of Earl, earlstown so we're, it's a completely different approach to the two town centres both are being improved um with our partners english cities fund but a very different approach in in earlstown completely different character set in a conservation area as as well so our approach to each is different. So I'll go on to explain a little bit about, about that um, and the distinctions there. So for Earl Sound, our approach is an upgrade as part of a levelling up fund round two success. A physical upgrade to the look and the feel of the market square um, in Earl Sound. It's a wonderful asset as it stands, um, but the look and feel of it can certainly be improved by by the capital investment that we've secured. So what that will do is the public realm um, it will be um, high quality public realm interventions bringing soft landscaping seating play features um, water features um, to make it more attractive to, to visitors because the visitor numbers have fallen off but one of the key elements of the earlstown market intervention as i mentioned it's currently open um, so open to the british weather and the inclement weather that we have the proposal is to put a covered market canopy over approximately a third of the market square. So we'll help with that trading in those um, more challenging weather periods. But even in the better summer periods, we'll provide some shade for patrons as well. So a significant difference there. And the market canopy in Earlstown, given a strong heritage, so when we talk about Earlstown Town Town Centre, for contact for people who aren't aware of it or haven't visited um, it was the home um, of the Vulcan um, Locomotive Works, so it's got a very strong rail heritage. It's got the oldest passenger rail facility in the world um, at Earlstown, um, in in right in the centre there as well. And there's been lots of historic businesses that that were home to to, to Earlstown, like the Lane salt Works, um, and it's the home of the the world's first um, industrial canal viaduct as well. So there's lots of heritage aspects that are going to get designed into mm-hmm. the new market canopy in Earlstown. So there will be those strong emphasis on the nine arches that are synonymous with with Earlstown, and then there'll be the locomotive themes and other strong heritage features of Earlstown will be featured in in there. Whereas Saint Helens town centre is very much more more of a new town, more of a coming out from the industrial age, and very much more a more modern feature um, within the town centre regeneration. So, an absolutely distinction and likely to be two different levels of patronage.
0: Yeah. I mean, we'll come back uh, in a minute to how you make uh, the sort of market not just distinct from each other, but distinct from other sort of town centre markets that you might find around the country. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about uh, where I live in Leeds, which is obviously a big. Uh, city, the the main market in the city centre has undergone a big change in recent years. There's now a a food court uh, right in the middle of it with uh, interesting cuisines from around the world and spaces for people to gather in and just a general very different offering to what markets traditionally have provided for people. Um, So presumably when you're Thinking about what the market in St. Helens needs to offer, it's not going to be the same as it was before, is it? You're going to be offering different different things to, ent- I guess, entice people in more recreation, sort of a, a different offering to just
1: lots of places for people to buy things. Absolutely. So I, I touched on one of the core things is is the location, and um, so we're putting that right um, in 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 this regeneration phase, and we've got whole whole scale support for that. Location is certainly the right the right um, the right piece of the jigsaw here, and um, the, the general trader support for them. They realize the weaknesses of the current arrangements. Certainly, what we what we are able to do is lean on the experience of our development partners, but also learning from our near neighbours. We've seen the new market developments, market hall developments that have happened in Warrington. Um, we've seen the south uh, an initiative in Southport. We've seen the huge success in Chester Market. Um, and it's moved from its former home into the into the into the new um, facility. There, and, and as you say, very much a, um, a difference and a variety of offers in the very much um, food and beverage food court food hall basis, some leisure elements, the performance spaces, um, areas that are, are bookable for communities or for workspaces. Um, as ancillary to the traditional market trading. But essentially, a meeting point is the, is the key element for the market hall. Somewhere that's informal in its, in its setting. Somewhere where all people of all ages feel comfortable coming to. And certainly the feedback that we had that influenced a lot of the content for the market hall in St. Helens is the younger generation who want a safe space and simply just to hang out as as well in that sort of informal setting. Quite vibrant, lots going on, lots of activity, and not singly focused on on pure retail. Absolutely, we, we will look to integrate um, some of the current market traders um, into the market hall, but very much as part of a different offer, as you say. Yeah, I was going
0: to ask you about the the existing market trader because i was sort of reading some of the local media reporting about uh, st mary's market and it's uh as you say it's declining fortunes in recent years i think it's fair to say a lot of the traders like butchers or you know tailors or card shops they feel uh perhaps a little bit abandoned uh by local officials i mean what what is being done to support them and do do they have a, a place in your vision for the new market in in st helen's
1: absolutely critical stakeholder for us um and it's and we, and we absolutely fully understand fully un- understand their concerns and i think what we've the strategy with us is that what we want to engage with the market traders when there's the meaningful content um to discuss with so i think part of the challenge that st ellen's and its businesses and it's including its market traders have had in the past is there's been lots of false dawns over-regeneration initiatives in the town centre. And what we're at pains to do is absolutely make sure that there's a solid proposition, which the phase one regeneration with the English Cities Fund is, it, it's, it's fully funded. It's got planning consents, Um We've got the land um, secured, available for it. So it's the timing really that we, we want to engage more thoroughly with those market traders now, more so than ever. Um, it would have been premature um, at various times, And that's where I think the hearsay is come in previously. And I think it's a completely different approach that we won't won't sort of go and talk about the potential of things happening. We'll talk about certainties and and then get their views to inform the actual delivery of the scheme as opposed to the principles here. So, yeah, very much welcome those discussions, which we'll we'll concentrate in in the coming weeks and months. We have had external expertise, um, so external consultants who are professionals in successful designs and integrations of existing markets into new facilities. Um, so uh, we have had some engagement between the market holders and those professionals, but that will continue in the next coming weeks. Okay. And you,
0: you mentioned about uh, funding, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's pretty well documented, isn't it, that councils like St. Helens uh, have had their central government funding cut massively in the last 10 years or so but is is it the case that these projects they have some funding coming from the council but also a lot of funding coming from external private sources so it's not just going to be the the taxpayer the local taxpayer footing the bill for this
1: yeah it's it's absolutely a cocktail um of, of funding um and and has to be really for for the reasons you've outlined the vast majority of that though is in furnaces sense islands but council and the reasons for all that is when we consulted um on our borough strategy um the number one priority was town center regeneration um residents of St Helens like myself are incredibly proud of the town and we're incredibly proud of the town center before its decline um and really at the start at the very heart of the border is the town center and I think the impressions and confidence grows from the performance of the town centre. So we listened to our communities who told us that was a priority. It's been named as a priority now, but a strategy. And the conviction in in very challenging financial times for the council to find just under £70 million of capital funding itself um, is a demonstration of its conviction to to do what was asked and not have another false dawn of a scheme where we've seen um pretty pictures and and CGI's previously it's it's all reality here now um but you mentioned all the cop the, the other funding contributions absolutely we're very proactive and we're very successful at securing and leveraging external funding so if we look at the town centre phase one um, regeneration scheme for St Helens um the significant contributions from St Helens um town deal funding from the government, um, which totals 25 million, which will deliver eight projects, part of which is within phase one of the regeneration scheme. We've managed to secure one public estate, Brownfield land funding for the residential components um, in there as well, and a suite of other funding contributions with the English Cities Fund as well, making a private sector contribution to elements of the scheme. So it is an absolute cocktail, but it, it would be be remiss of me not to, to mention the, the, the vast majority of St Helens Council funding in response to the residents' ask.
0: So the, the final thing I wanted to
1: uh, ask, Sean, was
0: obviously, I guess, one of the things that planners like yourself and people in charge of sort of working out what a town centre is going to look like, I suppose you have to be aware of the need for your town centre not to just be a sort of identical uh, identical looking to other places. Like if you're in St Helens, you could be anywhere in the country and have that distinct local identity, so that people know where they are and they understand the links to, uh, you know, a place's heritage. Just explain how you're you're accomplishing that in St. Helens, and, and well, you've you, you've spoken about it already in Earlstown, but in, in in St. Helens, how is that happening?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really valid valid point, and something we're we're really proud of actually. So you're right. The our partners have got a proven record of delivery elsewhere. But you're absolutely right, there's a risk of it being any town development. And and you look at some of the transferable components, you will see that English Cities Fund or Muse Developments have done elsewhere, be it a market hall, a hotel, an office, residential accommodation. And it's fair to say that some of the initial iterations of proposals that we saw were were that and were challenged by client the council here and more specifically the leader of the council who as soon as he saw the initial images had seen very similar in a number of other northern towns and said it's not one that we are going to support in that form it has to be based on the St Helens heritage for it to be successful and to receive buy-in from our business communities so it was a really constructive deep challenge to the design team with our partners and i'm absolutely pleased to see they they responded to that challenge um and absolutely exceeded our expectations and from this phase one town center regeneration scheme you can see influences from across what st helens is synonymous for so it's it's a glass making town it's built on its glass heritage um And we were the founders of that industry and changed the world effectively in terms of flat glass production. It was invented in St. Helens. So you see lots of architectural glass featured um, with Pilkington's as the provider for that glass who were based um, in St. Helens still. There's lots of stained glass elements in, in terms of that, but that's just one feature. They've gone across the town and looked at key heritage assets or key elements that our residents and businesses have told us that they're proud of and would would like to be integrated. So we can look at listed buildings from Pil- former Pilkington's headquarters, um, which is the the the, um, the Alexander Park building that towers across St. Helens. There's elements of, of key distinctive elements of that that are brought in to the office and hotel elements. The market hall, the original market hall, um, dating back to the 1800s, we took inspiration, we've gone through the archives and some of the profiling of the structure um, has has taken inspiration um, from those as well. And all the key pockets of, of elements that the Sounds um, proud heritage reflects. So anyone who looks at the plans will be able to to spot those. And then some of the key ones I, I fondly remember as a child from the 1980s indoor shopping centre, the Hardshaw Centre that will be demolished. This year, um, I'm sure every child that was brought up in that area in St. Helens remembers a um, a child's play equipment, Kaz, um, kid eating snake, for short. Um, and we are looking at bringing back that feature in a modern twist um, into the market hall and and the adjacent area. So, when I looked at the social media around our extensive engagements probably the number one ask was to bring back the kid eating snake or a modern equivalent of so that is absolutely going to feature prominently in the hood as well
0: wow exciting well uh,
1: th- i think that will be
0: a, certainly make you distinct from any other town center market not many have a kid eating snake that's uh, exciting times indeed well um sean thank you so much for telling us about what's going on in st helen's and town Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts